0: You're listening to Feed Play Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. The majority of Australians live in metropolitan areas or in cities where having a backyard is a privilege. Tanya Heeslip grew up in a very different environment. Tanya's childhood was full of things like mustering cattle and learning through school of the air on a vast and isolated property just north of Alice Springs. As you can imagine, it wasn't an easy way of life. Tanya's latest book is called An Alice Girl, and it's all about her extraordinary childhood. Hi, Tanya. How are you?
1: I'm very well, Siobhan. Thank you.
0: When did you realise that your childhood was actually quite extraordinary?
1: Do you know it seemed so normal to me, and it seemed so normal to me all through my growing up years. I don't think I realised how extraordinary it was until I went away and I went overseas to the Czech Republic in the mid 90s and I taught English. And that was the first time I got a real sense of how different it was because the Czech people I met thought it was very exotic. Um, But I thought, well, that's because they live on the other side of the world. So probably anything Australian is quite exotic. But it it planted the seed, but really it was only when I started writing the book, that my first book, Alice to Prague, and then I came to write this second one, it just occurred to me in the writing of it how unusual it was, which, which goes to show that your childhood really shapes your thinking for your whole life because really it was until then that to me it had always seemed so normal and people just had other and different kind of lives.
0: Because it seems really extraordinary even as an Australian. I mean, we do, of course, hear about people growing up on the country, um, living on farms, but there is quite a big divide, I think, between city and country life in Australia. Have you found people, your fellow Australians who live in city areas kind of are a bit taken aback at your childhood as well?
1: Yes when I was going through university in the 80s and in particular law school in Adelaide people would laugh all the time at the kind of expressions I used um, which were still very you know we talk about mobs of things and if you want to get rid of something you'd send it to the bush gate and these kind of bush expressions that just populated my language without me thinking about it and they thought it was hilarious, absolutely hilarious and they really thought I lived in some sort of very strange place because also the average Australian holiday is to go to the beach, especially in summer and all my holidays were straight back to the cattle station, back on a horse and back into the stock camp.
0: Can you describe the property where you lived just to give us some sense of what it was like?
1: So beautiful, Siobhan. <laughs> so beautiful, this wild, raw, empty paradise. Really, it was seven hundred square miles, which which is about I think about sixteen hundred square miles. I've never quite worked out the difference, but that in central Australian terms is a very small property, and most properties are something like three. Thousand square miles because it's so arid. You need that much land in order to grow cattle and have them self-sustaining. So, but still, seven hundred square miles. That's that's enough space of wild hills and scrub and gullies and rocks, especially for kids to feel like they're just in their own paradise.
0: And I guess, you know, you said you went to university in the 80s and we know that parenthood has changed quite a bit over the years. But was was it your case that in your childhood you were allowed freedom of that space when you were growing up?
1: We had so much freedom, Siobhan. It was the norm. We you know, could roam free because, first of all, all kids had to learn to ride as soon as they could on a cattle station so that they could start working and going into the stock cam and mustering cattle because that's the core business, raising cattle, mustering them um, and then dealing you know, um, with them in the yards to get ready for market and so forth. So we had to learn all those skills very, very quickly and to do that it meant we had to be sent off often on our own for miles and miles, for hours and hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. Uh, on end when the stock camp was out, you know, we could tell from the sun and the ranges and the creeks where we were at any given time. We we could read the country. So we had total freedom and mum and dad never ever worried. I don't think we ever got lost.
0: I yes, I find that extraordinary. I don't even let my kids go out the backyard because we don't we have a shared backyard and I can't imagine trusting them in that kind of vast amount of space. How old were you the first time you got on a horse?
1: It's difficult to remember the exact age, but I would say about four. We had a little pony that we used to sit on and just be led around when we were probably four or five. My brother was on a horse when he was 18 months old, but I think I was probably about (laughs) four or, or five. And then when we started to learn properly, I was about six or seven.
0: And your parents, you mentioned there they were, you didn't think they were ever worried about you out um, sort of roaming the countryside. But you also talked about living on a cattle station, that it was just expected that children would go out and work. Um, I, when you said that, I went, oh my goodness, that's terrible children working. We're back in the industrial age. Slave labour. They went down the coal mines. But obviously you're, obviously your." Parents, uh, when they decided to have the cattle farm, had an idea in their minds about how this was going to work with you kids. Was it? Do you think it was an organic thing? Do you know how what their thoughts were when they got the cattle station? Were they thinking, "We'll make this work with the children. We'll keep having children, so so we have a labour force we can use."
1: Well, look, certainly that was the philosophy of a lot of people. There was this old sort of joke in the bush that the girl on a cattle station would marry the boy next door and breed his stock camp. Wow. It was just a well-known adage. Um, needless to say, my sister and I escaped from that. <laughs> but I think it was more organic in mum and dad's case because they came to Bond Springs... It's this brave, wild adventure when they're only 26 and I was three, my sister was two and my brother was one. So I don't think then that was in their minds, to be honest. They were coming, they bought this tiny property that everyone said was unviable, but they bought it because it was the only thing they could afford and it was in the middle of a 10-year drought. So their whole focus was on just getting it was survival, really, and then it was just by luck that we grew up and because we were surrounded by stockmen, of course, what kids want to do, they want to emulate the adults around them. We had no-one else around us but Stockman. so They were our heroes. We just wanted to be like them and so no doubt that suited Dad very well and um, it just became this stage... As with all bush kids, you started to learn to ride, and then you you started to work. Um, so I think it was more organic in Mum and Dad's case, but they saw around them that that was the norm. So it probably influenced them somewhat.
0: So when you talk about um, working, how does that how does that balance? What does that balance look like on a farm when your children who are also being educated at the same time as being very involved in the family business of cattle. How does that work?
1: Um, well, Dad got very good, very strategic at working around our school lessons. So we were 7.30 to 1 o'clock, Monday to Friday. From 1 o'clock onwards, we were his so a lot of work got done in the afternoon that where he needed extra hands. And so we'd be up in the cattle yards or we'd be fixing fences or we'd be helping fix up a bore. So Dad would use that time. So we, we didn't have a lot of playtime. Um, I mean, our play all our time was sort of free in a sense, but Dad made sure every spare minute we were usefully engaged. And then when there was a big muster on if it was during term, Dad would often just take us out of school and then we would have to make up school on the weekends for as long as it took. So ultimately the station business took precedence over education. So if it was really important, Dad would march up to the schoolroom and out we'd go with my brother and sister going, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, we're off. Yay, because that's they loved it. And I was always trudging behind, miserable, because I loved school and I didn't want to be dragged out of it. And then, of course, school holidays. Dad, I think, worked big musters around school holidays. And our big holidays um, were also in the middle of the year, which was key mustering time. So. I think it'll work very well for Dad. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you were learning, learning through, through School of the Air. air. Is that you, you were, were quite, quite remote. remote. That was the only way to, way to do it, it, wasn't it, wasn't it? Yes. 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 So we had two lots of schooling. It was really interesting. The main schooling was correspondence lessons that came out of the correspondence school in Adelaide. And they would send up sets of work to last two weeks and you'd and it would be basically the three hours, reading, writing, arithmetic, a little bit of Um, what was it called, social studies, which was a bit of geography and history mixed in. And so that's from 7.30 to 1, that's what we would work on mostly, all written work. And then in the middle of that time, we'd each have half an hour for School of the Year. So School of the Year was run out of Alice Springs and that was more fun and that was talking to a real-life teacher or a school of the air, we had a a correspondence school, we had the teacher in Adelaide, but we didn't ever see her. We just, we'd send away our lessons and they'd be marked and they'd come back about a month later and we'd eagerly wait to see if there were any gold stars or worry if there were red marks. So there was this sort of process of we were working on one while one was being sent south and another one was being marked and sent up and in between this half an hour each day we went onto the air and... And we do reading and some maths, but sort of more fun things. Was correspondence school was very serious. That was the proper learning.
0: And what about other kids? Like you mentioned that you were surrounded by the stockmen growing up, and you had your siblings. But was there ever an opportunity for you to play with other children?
1: Yes, um, school of the year introduced this fabulous thing called a get together. So once a year, for a whole week. five days I think all the mums and governesses would bring the kids into town and you'd spend that week with school of the air and meeting your teachers and and your classmates and then you would do fun things like go and see a real fire truck or go to the police station Uh, and so you'd actually get to put faces around the names and voices that you become very familiar with. So we really develop very strong connections with our School of the Air friends. You know, and to this day we all have this sort of soul heart connection and to this day we all remember our call signs. It doesn't matter where you are, you see someone who's on School of the Air with you and you can talk to each other and call each other up by your, your call sign. And as was Sierra Victor uniform, and it'd say hi Sierra Victor uniform to uniform papa or somewhere else and so even if it was only a week a year, as we got older, we saw those kids more often. But um initially it was the get together that made it possible.
0: And we've we've been alluding this whole time to the fact that you were on a property that was quite remote because you had to do school of the air and you didn't, you know, see other children much during the year. What did that remoteness mean for your other sort of ordinary needs like electricity, water, food? How did that impact, that remoteness, impact those everyday things?
1: It's very, very expensive surviving on a cattle station because everything has to be brought in, everything. So we had a generator that would provide power so we'd have to get diesel in, buy-in diesel and the generator would be used just sparingly early in the morning for cooking, late at night again for cooking and for food. And it was never on during the day, so it was all about minimizing power. Never ever leave a light on, or, you know, that was, oh, water. We had to dig bores and dams and build tanks. And so water was more precious than life itself. And we'd have, a bath at night we three kids in bath water about two or three inches deep out of the t- out of the tank it was dirty bore water it was brown and we three kids would sit in that. then food interestingly our station today would not be deemed remote at all because it's north of ours but not that far north but back then with roads and old vehicles it would be pretty much a full day trip to get to town. And so my mother would come once a month and get big sacks of flour and potato and pumpkins. It was a very basic diet and tinned peas and beans for our greens. And then every month, Dad would get a killer, as it was called. So get a beast um, to provide meat for the station. So it was very, very simple food. Uh, and apart from the cattle which sort of were, which were grown there and raised there everything else had to be brought in
0: did you have any sense that that sort of existence was tough
1: no it was so i guess for any kids whatever you know is normal and if you don't have anything to compare it with it's like doubly triply normal and to the extent you could compare it It was kids on cattle stations around you who had exactly the same existence and even because some of them really did live hundreds and hundreds of miles out and they got their mail through, you know, the mail plane, whereas, you know, we'd get as once a month from, you know, driving into town. But it seemed so normal. And I remember when I first really understood that, you know, living in a city was a very different world, I just thought, how do those poor people survive? How do they survive in those little houses with those tiny little backyards? And I felt so sorry for them.
0: <laughs> um, so now you live in Alice Springs. I, I know that you go still go out and visit the property where you grew up, but what do you, do you miss anything about living out there now as an adult living in town?
1: Yes, I do so much. There's a sense of... Um, Timelessness, in a way, in being out in the bush, because the bush doesn't change. Everything there looks exactly as it looked as I always remember. The big mountain ranges are unchanged. The creeks, the you know, the dry riverbeds. You you lose gum trees and you you lose mulga trees during the droughts, but the land is the same. Everything's the same. So I miss that sense of timelessness. The other thing I really miss, um is you get, a, you get an appreciation of the day. You wake to the sun and you go to bed pretty much after it gets dark. And there was something incredibly comforting about that. It was just a rhythm, a routine. Everyone got up with the sun, you went to bed. So I'm sure there must be something about biorhythms where your body is working with the daylight and the night and light and dark and you get up with the birds and you go to bed with the birds so I miss that terribly whenever I go out I just love to go to bed as soon as it's dark and I lie in bed and I can see the stars and I can hear cattle bellowing in the background which is the most comforting sound and then wake up to the beautiful pink and purple rays across the sky and it's precious
0: and does your dad still put you to work when you go out there
1: well (laughs) unfortunately and very sadly my dad died last year but he was working us to the last minute and now we are still working following his commands that he's left us so he might as well still be here cracking the stock with because yep some things haven't changed
0: (gasps) and what a brilliant childhood he and your mother gave you tanya thank you so much for speaking with us today
1: oh Siobhan it's been a joy a delight thank you and beautiful questions
0: thank you that's author Tanya Heeslip, and her book is called An Alice Girl we'll put links to the book in the notes of this episode Feed Play Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me Siobhan Hunt I'd love to hear from you so if you'd like to get in touch